Hi, and welcome to the very first episode of the Toronto Tech Podcast. My name is Sergio, and I'll be hosting interviews to find out what people in Toronto are doing with technology. That includes students, researchers, developers of all kind, makers, network engineers, hackers, and C-level executives. We'll be talking about how people got started, what technology they use every day, and what they really do, not just a job title. Alongside each episode, you'll find useful notes and additions. For example, my guest today talks about a summer camp where he learned to make video games and program simple robots. You can find a link to the summer camp and lots of other interesting references in the episode notes. Today's guest is a fourth-year computer science student and longtime friend of mine. In our usual fashion, we couldn't hold back conversation while I was getting set up. Without further ado, here's episode one of the Toronto Tech Podcast. Do you know really? what's, what's interested me for a long time? Have you ever, like, when I got into audio engineering, I kind of <laughs> dabbled in this a little bit, just taking tracks and pulling out, like, specific channels or specific uh, audio tracks in it. So, like, pull out the guitar. What does the drum sound like just by itself? Or what does, like, the bass sound like just by itself? And I know Beatport, that website for, like, music, all electronic music, they have stemming competitions so or stemming contests. So, like, an artist will re- release all of the audio tracks that made up one song, like, all the way down to, like, this is just the hi-hats, this is just the kicks. And then they, like, the contest is to remix it using those stems. And from time to time, I would just listen to those because they're, like, amazing. They're so, they're just so interesting to listen to a song that you've heard before, broken down to the finite elements. And I would love to listen to some stuff like that for jazz. Like, you know, just the fucking baritone sax or just the, you know. Just the piano, just the bass. Yeah. yeah. That Pretty needs to be a thing. So, Paul, uh, why don't we start by introducing yourself, telling people who you are. Hey, I'm Paul Martins. I'm a fourth-year computer science student at uh, Ryerson University. I've always been yeah. interested in computer science. Did a co-op. I'm looking forward to graduating. And you, you, you're in uh, computer science now, but that's not always, that's not where you started. Yeah, so I, I first enrolled at a high school into computer engineering. Uh, didn't really know a lot about it. To be honest, I was undecided. I kind of wanted to go into biology as well, but realized I probably wouldn't be the best for it. Um, yeah, and I loved it. Like, I, I didn't enjoy computer engineering immediately. And uh, I didn't end up liking it in the long run either. It ended up being a lot more circuit-based and uh, hardware-based stuff than I was ready for. And uh, a friend of mine was in computer science and found his computer science. I found his computer science stuff so entertaining to me that I ended up reading it more than I was reading my own course textbooks. And then that's when I realized I needed to make the switch. And I enrolled. I dropped out of computer engineering, joined computer science. My parents always ask me what's the difference all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I do not regret it in the slightest. I love it. Even if I lost the year, it, it made my path clear. So yeah, and you it was in first year after first year that you yeah, made the switch. Yeah, I did my whole first year, and a lot of courses transferred because of that. Like uh, some of my electives, you have to take physics, English, you know, basic math classes, linear algebra. A lot of those transferred. Oh yeah. No, you did your internship uh, at a place that I thought was super fascinating. It was at Environment so, Canada. Yeah, I worked at. Uh, the federal government and environment Canada, environment and climate change Canada has now been branded to uh, pretty cool and yeah I worked as a like a full stack developer co-op student there um, dealing with a lot of weather data surrounded by meteorologists who are the most interesting people I have such a deep respect for meteorologists after working there now I, I just I didn't really understand what their job was but they're amazing they're just amazing people and they're all super nice everybody who worked at environment Canada was super super nice which is a nice 
it's just good just great all around mm. yeah i remember talking with you sometimes and you would say man like for for three hours today the meteorologists were just outside where i was working just yeah. talking about it's so funny because um and we've talked about this before but just regular people's small talk is the weather like that's a oh, lovely weather we're having but for them that's like their hardcore details that's <laughs> the that's the get down stuff like they'll go into crazy detail like oh this is for this type of precipitation is formed when these things happen and i would always lose it in the mix i could never understand what they were talking about like they have to be a meteorologist it's a significant amount of education like they have to do high level calculus they have to do high level physics like they have to, it's more than I thought you had to know to become a meteorologist. They're both, they're, all of them were extremely talented, extremely smart. And never wore the wrong outfit for the weather. No, yeah. <laughs> we had this one guy in my office who was a meteorologist and I would always ask him, because you know the weather reports are sometimes wrong. I'd be like, so what do you think, judge on the, the radar? And we have all the radar data there, right? And he would never get it wrong day after day. He'd never get it wrong. This one day I was like, when do you think it's going to rain today? And he was like, probably just after 3 p.m. 3 p.m. comes around and like immediately starts pouring in the parking lot. I was like, what? How can you? You're actually voodoo. You're not a real person. <laughs> yeah, He was great. What was yours? What was your first experience? Did you always want to go into computers or electronics programming, software design? Uh, I knew from a young age that I did want to. Um, from when I was very little, like the first time I got my, my mitts on a computer or something that resembled a computer, I was a figure it all out. And I think I got my first computer at home when I was in, or first at school when I was in grade five. And I just, even a bit before actually grade three, I think there were computers in there, but they were old Commodores and I didn't know anything about them at that point. I was, I was not yet, I didn't have, uh, people guiding me. Or people telling me, here's the resource you need to, or like, go explore this. This is how you'll learn. So I was just kind of like taking it, rotating it in my hands and saying, what the hell is this thing? A computer. Um, but I really got into it around the fifth grade. We got a ton of computers in the libraries and in a couple oh, of the yeah, classrooms. Right. And they were networked. We were on the oh, internet. Oh, yeah. There were so many possibilities there. <laughs> and I just never looked back. Yeah, that's crazy. Actually, me and my brother were, were just joking today, this morning, right before my, my midterm about like what it was like when we were growing up just to have internet and you remember you'd have to like dial up or if somebody pick up the phone on the other side just that awful noise or AOL would send you those CDs in the mail if you wanted a connection to the internet I don't even entirely understand what that is like or what that was for uh, I don't know I don't I never used one of them either no (laughs) (laughs) I just used them to throw to pretend they're frisbees and throw around that's like we were little kids yeah definitely Uh, So you just finished an exam right before this recording. Yeah, I did. uh, It's it's like an intro to AI course. So it's one of my, it was actually a second year course. So I'm in fourth year. um, But because I did my co-op, I wasn't supposed to go for as long as I went. I I did 16 months for my co-op term. And you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to do like an eight months and then another chunk after that. Because like if you're a second year student, you don't, they don't want you to work on huge, huge, massive projects or get involved in something that you don't have the skill for. They want you to have also multiple places of work so that you can get a good digest of what exists out there. But I made a mistake and I got a job that was a 16 month project and my co-op advisor was just like, you should take it, man. And so we talked to the dean and the dean was all right with it. I just had to shift around some courses. And so I'm taking some courses that are uh, not necessarily fourth year. I'm taking my AI course and it's just, it's an intro to prologue. Um, Not a lot of context, which I was kind of mad about, like not a lot of, um, AI theory. It's really just a jump into prologue to solve certain problems. Like how do we solve the Sudoku grid using prologue? Or how do we solve this scheduling problem using prologue? Um, 
which is definitely cool. It's definitely cool. I'm just missing some of the background. And Prolog is that niche language that you can you can solve problems very elegantly in Prolog, but it's 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 very specific in what it what it's good at solving. Yeah, so it's a it's a declarative programming language. You don't specify how to do things; you specify constraints, and then it solves the problem for you, which is unlike anything you've probably ever used if you haven't used Prolog. But it's it's super nifty. Uh, it's super cool, and it makes pro- solving certain problems just so easy, um, but very inefficient. <laughs> in terms of yeah, time complexity. Are there any courses in university that you wish you took like a second level of, like instead of just the intro to AI or take like you know advanced AI or something on like really specific topics that you never got an opportunity to because you were taking other courses? Not really, to be honest. Damn. There, I didn't take a lot of a, a wide variety of stuff in my undergrad, and most of what I so I went to school for networking and security, mm-hmm. which is now I'm I work in as a software developer. So it's a very different world from setting up networks and making sure no one can break into them versus like writing an app and having it go off and do things. So the huge majority of my courses was focused around networking. And I only really got computer science or software development skills from internships or from side projects or from once in a while, I would have to build something small to satisfy my course requirement. But did you have to take any like software engineering courses in your undergrad that teach you like, I don't know, Scrum or certain design patterns or like uh, version control systems, stuff like that? Because we, we had a course like that. It was taught us like object oriented programming because that's like very marketable. And then like a bunch of things or tools that are really marketable, agile programming, stuff like that. Yeah, I had a course. We had object oriented programming that was C++. And then oh. we had another course that was, it talked about methodologies like Waterfall, I think it was a chapter in another course. Um, Agile versus Waterfall versus whatever. I, I honestly, those are one of the least valuable things I've taken in university. <laughs> That's super funny. <clears throat> Most of, uh, there were some really, really good ones though. Like uh, we had an operating systems class, oh, yeah. which taught us all about the very low level stuff in like network access, file descriptors, uh, file systems. We, there were a bulk of, the bulk of the course was file systems. And you got to really appreciate the underpinnings of the, the computer that you use every day and all the complex stuff that is going on underneath <laughs> the hood to just make your simple file drag and drop or whatever happen. Yeah. There's so, so many abstractions like from the OS all the way up. Like you just, I think about it from time to time, like the abstractions that exist from operating system to operating system, like Windows, the abstractions like that you've conveniently learned over the years are so much different than like mac i think it's like on mac installing a program is you literally drag and drop it into like in some some way i I don't entirely understand it i've never used mac but like the pipeline of actions that you you do to accomplish a task is so different so varied but the underlying architecture is is very similar right like there's still there's paging there's um file descriptors there's like so many common concepts that exist in between both just different abstractions exactly and a lot of people don't know that linux and Mac both came from the same fundamental, which is Unix, which is why under the hood, if you open up a terminal in Linux or if you open up a terminal in Mac, they have a lot of similarities. Whereas you open they, one they up in Windows. Bash, right? Like, or like default. They yeah, exactly. They both use Bash. That's dope. Um, can you get the, the Z shell on Mac? Is that a thing? Yeah, you can. Oh, that's awesome. But everything being file-based on, on Mac, just like it is on, whereas Windows, everything's very API-based. If you want to clone a hard drive from one to the other, there's an API for that. Whereas if you want to do that on, on Linux, you just say, take this and put it over there. <laughs> and the same, as Mac, same with Mac. And yeah. like if you, there's one root file system in Linux 
and in Mac. That always was weird to me. Just like it's such a simple and powerful concept. I, my my first year, we had to take a course on just like really simple bash stuff, and and one of them was like the very first thing he posts on like the very first slide is everything is a file, and I'm like, what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> what does that even mean? Yeah, well, what are you file? talking about? I'm pretty sure there's things that are not files, and uh, and then you learn. I was wrong. <laughs> Everything is a file. <laughs> you ever done any exploring? There's times where I go into slash proc and I, or I go into slash sys and I'm looking for something in particular. And then I'll get a little distracted going like, what the hell? What is this over here? Mm. And I was like, oh my God, this is a file. The connection, TCP connections that are open is a file. And everything is implemented as a file. It just, if you want to look at how much memory usage is used and yeah. if you want to look at the current directory of an application that's running, all of these things are files. Battery levels, whether you're charging or something, it's all just a file in the system. Yeah. It's super, super cool. When you, when you plug in a USB device, a file appears. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, in that same course, my prof was demonstrating that, like, just to, proof, pro- to prove this, it was like, watch, I'm just going to echo some, some, some string of text to this file and then like the printer in the other room starts printing a file and I was like there's no way that that's a thing there's no yep. way that's a thing it's you a real thing input to a folder that's, that represents a printer and it started printing I was like that's just that's bonkers this is a thing of beauty yeah I remember seeing there was a video driver that was failing to start and because it was failing to start the screen would never it didn't show anything and the driver wanted to tell the user hey I tried to get this started three times it would never come up so you don't have a screen here's what happened so what it did was it just took that string of words and piped it to the printer and spit it out. There's no way. There's a there's a picture I found of some dev holding that up. He's like, I, I guess how I know my video drivers aren't working. <laughs> Dude, that's hilarious. What if you don't have a printer, though? This is the You're weirdest. You're out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a weird idea. Wow. I wonder what spooky things you could do. There's <laughs> <laughs> a story I, I found... This is a little while ago that uh, this was beautiful. Some some security researcher was just bored, and he wanted to. He looked on the internet for printers that were publicly reachable from the internet, <laughs> and he found he so let it run good, overnight. Starting off strong, <laughs> and he found two hundred thousand printers. Holy! And and he only did it. He didn't do it that exhaustively, you know. Yeah, he yeah, was just absolutely. let's see. And so he said, you know, he sent the, he printed something off. It was Man. like. I have taken over your printer. Also, why do you have a publicly accessible printer on the internet? This makes no sense. And a bunch of them were like receipt printers at restaurants. Oh, that's that's amazing. I'm just picturing some guy in like an office of something that's supposed to be super secure. Just like just starts printing out these sheets of paper that say that. What was your dream job coming out of high school? Or like when you first started realizing that you were going to get into like software development or something with computers what what did you think your job was going to be i mean i have no idea i was just going with the flow of i think this is interesting i'll go do some of that i think now i think this other topic's interesting i'll go do some of that that hasn't changed for you has it i mean not really you're just interested in projects themselves and not the work like the work is a means to solving a task on that project that's the thing that really critically interests you is the project itself when I was um, going out to do my internship, applied to a ton of different places, and I I got I got into a couple, which was good, and I just picked the one that was most interesting, and ended up working on some cloud computing infrastructure software, mm. which was so fascinating. I learned so much from that, and just I really stuck with it because it's something that I found interesting. But then went back to school, graduated. I happened to find a job because my resume had that. I found a job that was exactly that, but it was a lot more of a startup feel, mm. right? It was. At the time that I was hired, it was me, one other dude, 
and the like the boss CEO owner of the company and we just sat at one small table together and we did everything and I really like that that culture if if I need to double check a requirement I just like take off my headphones and wave at the guy to take off his headphones and we talk about it yeah that's super dope I mean that's contrasting to the first job you held right which is probably IBM right yeah it was it was that I I did my internship at IBM and there was there was a lot of process for everything. Yeah, it's all policy based. There is similar with Environment Canada. Like you're all in cubicles, it kind of feels weird. Eventually, I mo- we moved into like a sitting beside everybody you work with. Like all of the interns sat on this like one long table with each other, which is really awesome. That's way better. I love that. Yeah, the communication when you're all close to everybody like that, you can just tap it's someone the on the shoulder. Critical thing that exists in computer science. Like I keep telling people, like I'm in a marketing class and a lot of those people, they see me like taking notes in Vim. They're just like, what's, what is this guy doing? Is he, is he messing with us? And no, it's just Vim. But uh, yeah, they're always just like, what is programming like? Like what is, what is, what do you learn in computer science? And and everybody's like, it's programming languages, programming languages. I was like, no, that's like, that's like taking literature in another language is what I kind of liken it to. Once you understand the language, once you understand the syntax, the semantics, all that, it all comes down to design structure. That's the real critical part of it. That I think a lot of people miss the mark with. They, they just think you're like, you're just speaking to computers and that you're the computer whisperer and then things get done. <laughs> if, if my only, like, how much of my job is, is actually typing code into a computer and telling it what I want it to do? It's a relatively small portion. And you always want to minimize that, right? That's the whole yeah, goal. I want to do less of it. Yeah. Most of what, I, what I'm doing, and I, I think the same is true for you, is I'm figuring out design for things. I'm trying to solve the problem of, okay, that's the right, that's like the best design that we can come up with. Now, how do I make that work in computer terms, right? What do I need from the database? What do I need in, in the APIs? What do I need? Underlying data structures, ways to access those data structures. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just what I tell people all the time is computer science, or if you want to be a dev, you are solving problems because that's my experience. All day, every day, I'm solving the problem of, okay, we need this system to talk to that other system to give this piece of information. That's a problem. It needs this piece of information. How do you do that? Once that becomes the fundamental bedrock of what you consider computer science, then that's how all of these things follow suit, right? Like communication is so massive. Whiteboarding problems is so massive. And I think a lot of companies miss that mark, right? Like my, my, my first time in Environment Canada, I mean, they were adopting some really cool stuff. I'm not going to lie. The senior dev in my office was like, if you don't start using Git, if you don't start using Scrum, if you don't start adopting all of these, like, things that are tried and true in the industry he's like i'm just gonna quit like and your projects are gonna fail and you're gonna have a really hard time so like you should definitely adopt these things and it's like and it's for the benefit of the company and ultimately it comes back to taxpayers right because it's a facet of or it's a department of the, of the federal government so uh no super great guy and i had a lot of fun there mm-hmm. it sounds like you learned a ton from that place yeah um, i learned more there in the 16 months i was there than like the first two years of my undergrad by a long stretch by a long stretch. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Easily like 10 times as much. Just like the workflow, uh, how to production environments versus development environments, how to use Git effectively, not just like your intro, how to deal with when somebody messes up branches, how, to, how do you like get information back once it's been lost? There's always ways, right? There's always little tricks you learn and that that experience you need. Like there's there's only so much that pure theory can get you if you haven't just tried it. You got to do the thing. And I, I did it. Getting practical, actually trying to build something. Yeah. That's, that's where you're really going to learn a lot. That's where I learned the most was yeah. when I was actually building something. I think I learned a lot so much because my senior developer was really ready to give me feedback. He was, he was always interested in giving, giving me good feedback. Um, he, 
Like I wrote some awful, awful code in my first couple of weeks there, I'm sure. And I mean, at the end of my, I was rewriting things that I had already written because it's like the half-life to code, right? Like eventually you're going to rewrite stuff that product requirements change. Um, you realize that certain bugs exist. You have to go and go into old stuff. And uh, oh my God, it was awful. It was some, some of the stuff <laughs> I wrote early on, I was just like, what was I thinking? Uh, I just didn't under, I didn't have a full deck of cards. I didn't entirely understand what the critical problems of some of the, th- the tasks I were accomplishing was. And uh, I got the scope and I got that context later on. It was really good. I, I can very much appreciate that. You you improved very uh, hugely from when you started. Yeah, definitely for the better. Um, I'm sure you had similar experiences, right? Like when you, when you started working at that startup, I'm sure you were just like, it's very tight knit. Everybody's around you. You can talk to them and there's like, you can be personable with them. There's, it's not policy driven. So you can, you can really in- inflict change if you want. And I use inflict. Yeah. I use that word on purpose because you can do, inflict harm as well, right? You can really do bad things if you're too close to somebody, if you don't keep it professional, if you... Yeah, it's totally right. It was... When I started there, the code that I wrote was not so good. It, it accomplishes, the, it, you know, it did what it was supposed <laughs> to do for the most part, but I really missed the mark on some of the more important stuff like, oh, what happens if the world isn't perfect and one little thing is off? It just explodes catastrophically, you know, <laughs> instead of giving you a nice error message like, hey, you did this one thing wrong, just fix it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I learned a lot about design. I learned a lot about how to fail gracefully, how to build resilient systems. Because we were a startup, the requirements were changing like every other week. So yeah. we had to do major design shifts as we were building just this refactor thing. whole pieces at a time mm-hmm. all the time like there were times when a was the parent b was going to be the child and that was our architecture everything revolved around that and then a business requirement came up that was very made a very strong case for inverting the two so we had to take everything that was running in b and make it run in a and vice versa and it was like a design of everything again almost like it was a lot of work that's scary that's a scary moment but but it taught me a lot because I, I anticipate now that the design for this will probably change or the design for this it will probably does. not change. It always does. You have to you have to build on the assumption that things are always going to change. Things change. There's some things you write and you're like, okay, this is a little thing off to the corner. Like no one's going to change this foreseeably for the rest of its life. Um, that doesn't happen often. But when it does happen, you know, identify those cases and then write code accordingly. You know, if this is probably never going to change for three to five years, do a good job and make it concrete or if this is likely to change in a month when next design meeting comes up or whatever it is then build that into your design don't put such concrete constraints on it if they're likely to change try not to put constraints on the system if they're likely to change Mm. don't use like super specific design pattern that can only be used in that one scenario if you know it's going to change because you're gonna have to restructure your whole design yeah it's not good i learned that i learned that lesson at the end of the day boiled down to the the nitty gritty details of like what do I put in a document together in a database or what do I put in another database table anticipating requirements changes do I make this field a boolean yes no or do we anticipate there's more things coming that might require so three different states not like not like being sloppy because it's going to be changed but making a data structure that's like adaptable to change yeah, yeah that's a difference Consciously. And, and still actively doing all the documentation that's necessary make sure it's absolutely readable <laughs> documentation in a startup is not fair enough <laughs> fair enough <laughs> not a thing uh-huh. well making it beautiful readable that's at least the minimum yeah if you if you don't document it make sure it's readable so that the guy doesn't need that documentation he just understands it he or she that's something i really got i was so surprised when i came to the company that i work at now um, a lot of code lacks documentation or even lacks comments in the code but the code is written so so readably so well 
for I'll give you a simple example. If you need five lines of code to do something interesting, whatever, rather than putting a comment above that five lines to say the next five lines is dedicated to this, take that functionality, put it in a function, and name that function accordingly. That way, as you're reading through it, you instantly understand, okay, I don't need to look into that function. It will do X because that's what it's called. And suddenly you makes your code more readable. It makes things more unit testable and kind of more beautiful, more elegant. So the next person who comes in to read something or to do to make some change, they can get up to speed much faster. That's always something I found really weird. Like some of the devs that I worked with on other projects that were slightly older that came from like C type systems or had always been working in like PHP or something like that. They would always use um, function names that were super short. That bothered me so much. Like even uh, I think C, the C library uh, for like changing a string to an integer is what A to I or something like that, ASCII to integer. And I think that yeah. that exists on other systems too. And I just find that I literally sat there the first time and I was just like, what the hell is this function a toy? Like what the, what is this? <laughs> what is this thing doing, yeah. man? It's just the worst. And I always push for, for that. I, I joke, like there's no character limit on your function names. In, <laughs> in modern languages, there isn't. That was a thing before. If you were writing something in basic, there was a 20 or 40 character limit on wow. your function name. 20 characters. Right? But that was a language developed in the 70s, like ages ago. Those kinds of constraints generally don't exist on any language you're likely to use. Yeah. So I really find that readability counts. So there's no character limit. 100%. Make it called ASCII underscore two underscore integer. <laughs> and then no one will have questions about what the hell this thing does. It's true. But... I mean, you don't have to be super verbose. You don't have to... Don't go overboard. Yeah. <laughs> I was having a bad day, so I named this function and just like <laughs> what I had for breakfast. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Name it something meaningful, too. If, <laughs> if your function is called like bacon and eggs <laughs> and, it, and it prints characters to the screen, that's it's nonsense. Definitely separate it by underscores and you're good. You're good. Bacon yeah. underscore. Or follow the convention. Camel case and JavaScript. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which what's the other one? There's there's camel case and then there's uh, where the first letter of the of the f- function name is not capitalized. Because camel case That's, it's camel case isn't camel case start the first letter is capitalized and then the first letter of every word is capitalized. Oh. One starts Maybe where because right. like method names you don't capitalize the first letter but classes you would and like certain like yeah. if you were using Java for example. Man, there's a name for that. I've been in the industry a long time and I still don't know. <laughs> Dude, there's something called Hungarian case, eh? I figured this out on Environment Canada. One of the older devs was using it. It was where, okay, you prefix every variable name with a letter that identifies the data type it is. So if it's an integer, you do like I value or something like that. I, I don't know, I year, year that's an integer. And some guy used this everywhere and I just couldn't, I just didn't understand it immediately that I had to go ask him. And I got up, like got up from my desk, which is the correct thing to do. And just straight up asked him instead of just like, toying in the dark and trying to hypothesize reasons. You just go and ask. And he gave me that reason. Hungarian notation or yeah. Hungarian case was the name for that. At least I think that was it. <laughs> I, I think the one we were looking for was kebab case. Kebab. Yeah, there you go. That's such a weird. There we go. Kebab or kebab? Uh, you know, <laughs> get sent. okay, let's make this whole podcast about that. Let's fight. All right, I'm down. No, nobody wants to listen to that. <laughs> That's okay. true. What about, um, we were talking about this previously, just that I had this infographic about the information that Facebook collects on you and how it can be used for marketing purposes. And, uh, I wish I brought it with me, but it was a ridiculous amount of things. It was like where you see it and it's just an ungodly amount of information they have on you. Like to the point where one of the things you can you can market to is people with six or more credit cards. That's a category. 
How is that a category? How can they? How do they know that? Yeah. I've put my credit card into Facebook zero times. Newly bought a home, just paid off their mortgage. That's like, these are all characteristics that you can tag and just be like, I want to market to them. It's not even just like, how old are you? Where are you from? How many, like, they know the type of music that you listen to. They like, based on the pages you like and how how long you look at certain videos and stuff like that. Like that's, it's insane how, how granular they can get it. That micro marketing approach, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's a hallmark of a to me it's kind of like this a scary world that we live in, that there's this entity that can divide you up into a thousand different categories by all these different attributes. Mm-hmm. And and many of them are attributes I didn't know they could figure out. <laughs> How do they know if I have one or two or four or six credit cards? Yeah, that's one that puzzles me, but I find it interesting. Um, and I wonder how some of the employees feel about that. You can have your... Okay, this is an interesting question. Could you work for a company that was paying you well, that you found was a super interesting computer science topic to work on, but that you that was not aligned with your political or ethical motivations? My, my gut reaction is to say, no, I couldn't. <laughs> but I honestly don't know about myself for certain. If I, if I would, if they have really interesting problems and they pay well and I like the people I work with, but it was immoral, let's say, or just on the, on the edge on of morality, the edge, yeah. I don't know for certain that I would go one way or the other. I don't know. I've never been put in a situation like that. I think I would, I, I would get out of there, but that's because of market conditions. Like as a software dev, if you want to write code for a living, there's a lot of jobs out there, especially here uh, in Toronto. So because there's a lot of jobs out there, I think I would leave and and with confidence say like, I'll find something Mm. similarly as good, right? But if these were the only people that offered jobs that were this good and it was teetering on the edge of morality, I don't know. I really don't know. That's tough. It's tough, right? Because when work, when finding work is tough, I don't think you've had the difficulty with that. But if... I've been lucky. Yeah. If if finding work was difficult, humans tend to, tend to do some terrible things for money, so... Well, you, you got to survive, man. If if you're in survival mode, I wouldn't even say, I mean, we're getting into a pretty deep morality hole. Here. <laughs> Fair enough. But people, people do what they got to do to survive at the end of the day. Yeah. You know? And I mean, some of it's not even survival though, right? Like if they were paying you an absorbent amount of money, it's not survival. That's at that not point. survival. But the, the greed. Yeah. I'm not, I know I'm not a greedy person when it comes to money. It's, it's about the work environment. Right. If I really yeah. love the work environment, if I really love the people that I work with, to me, that's the most important thing. It's a super important thing. Is, uh, even if you working on topics that you find super interesting, if you don't have developers around you that you, did you really enjoy their company, you really enjoy their process of thinking, they understand what you're saying immediately. You communicate effectively. Like if you don't have that, it's 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 futile. Now, I wanted to ask you, how did how did you get started in the world of software development and how did you, when did you realize this was something you wanted to go into? Uh, software development or just computer science generally? Uh, technology in general, let's say. Uh, this is a, an interesting story because I didn't realize it was a thing until one of my friends in high school brought it up. Like as we were graduating and he was asking like, oh, so what are you, what are you taking? Like we haven't seen each other in a while. I was like, oh, I'm taking computer science. And he's like, man, I always knew you were going to do computer science. I was like, what? I didn't even know I was going to do computer science. What do you mean? Like, I found it interesting, but I never knew I was going to do it. And he was like, dude, when we were in grade seven, you put 
Quake. No, it wasn't Quake and it was Doom on like an iPod Classic or whatever. It was iPod Video, the third generation. He was like, dude, you were, you were like, we were all on the playground. And he was, he's like, dude, you were just showing us how you had Doom on an iPod. And then he was like, dude, it was like coolest thing ever. I 100% knew you were going to go into like into computer science. And I was like, I guess Holy crap. You're right. You were, the, you were that kid on the playground. Yeah, there was this, <laughs> wow. this, this old project um, for putting a different firmware on iPods called Rockbox. So you could get flack, you could get games on it, you could watch videos on iPods that weren't supposed to have video on it. Like they, it was a great project; it still exists, I'm sure. And um, yeah, man, it just, I just found it the most interesting thing. It was just amazing to me. And that was your hook. You yeah, were that hooked. was it. That was it. Wow. What was it for you? When did you? I mean, we've kind of talked about this already, but yeah, I was like five years old, and I was like computers. <laughs> Computer. <laughs> Everybody would ask me, what do you want to do? And I would say something with computers. Fair enough. That's all I knew. And then I got into high school. I did networking in high school. And then I went to networking in university. That's hilarious because you're not working in a, in a networking environment yep. now. And right? I never have. Well, I mean, aside from that cloud computing, I mean, well, not really. Yeah. My networking knowledge really helped in that cloud yeah. stuff. But I mean, eventually we hired a full-time network guy and then it wasn't my problem yeah, anymore. Was. After, apparently after I left, it was like waterfall. Like <laughs> within a month, the next guy, two months later, the next guy and that's crazy at the time i was really bitter about i was really bitter about leaving this project that i loved i loved that project i wanted to work on it i wanted to see it flourish i wanted it to be great and to have people appreciate how good it was, was it because like you started it or was it just like you found I started the material it. interesting I, re- I literally wrote the first line of code for that project <laughs> so it was my baby man that's how i felt about it so when when things were not going well i was stressed out and when things were going well i was proud you know i really took it on and so when I was ultimately running against all these walls, all these blockages that I felt were unnecessary, they were people problems, they were not technology problems, I was getting really frustrated. And to, I actually started getting sick. And I went, to the, uh, I went to the doctor and found out that I was sick because of stress. There was nothing physically wrong with me at all. Wow. And like, I, How can they determine that? Well, they ran a bunch of tests. They say, oh, you're having this symptom, that symptom. Uh, let's look at what usually causes those symptoms and nothing was physically wrong i'll give you a good example this is the only time this has ever happened in my life i've had a i've always had a big appetite i eat minimum three meals a day it's insane you're the skinniest dude ever (laughs) and you can eat like all of the food in the world you'll be all right i don't eat junk yeah and that's key but while this was happening i started eating just a salad for lunch and I started not being able to finish it. That's how you know. <laughs> Something was wrong. Not finishing a salad. Not I think finishing that's because a salad. salad is salad. No, but I couldn't no finish it because I couldn't, I couldn't take it. Like wow. it's not because I didn't like it or something. I just felt full. I felt unhungry. So I went to the doctor. I was like, something's really wrong. What's going on down here in the, in the lower intestinal areas. Fair she enough. did a bunch of experiments and like, no, you're just stressed way, way out. Damn. So I learned a lesson about what not to do. Stress definitely influ- influences you. Like, man, I, I was in midterm mode and right before midterms, it's just a ton of assignments that all of my profs imp- like ask that they assigned to us. And um, I was at an, an all-time high in terms of stress. It was crazy. And I mean, like, I was getting maybe like four hours of sleep every night just working on projects or working on studying stuff for work. I was just in that grind. And that is not a place you want to be. It affects everything, your, your relationships with your family, your, your, the work you're doing yourself. Like My friend always jokes around about this. And he's like, man, sometimes when I'm stressed out, it would just I think I would program better if I was drunk. Like 
because I'm going to have to rewrite this anyway. Let's try and see the abstract thought I can get out of it. If you're stressed out, you're going to end up rewriting that code. You're going to end up using something that you haven't entirely fleshed out. You're not going to be honest with yourself because you're already angry. You're not going to see things objectively and you're just going to have to do it. It's like even in like boxing or sports, if you're flustered, if you're angry, if you're not calm, that's usually when you perform the worst. And I think that's crucial. I think there's a lot of parallels in computer science to sports. Um, but that's just because I like sports a lot. I could just be. <laughs> really? Yeah, you're really into uh, boxing. I boxing and Muay Thai, yeah. And like martial arts in general. I find it really interesting because like I've done sports my entire life, usually like group-based, team-based sports, like soccer, basketball, volleyball, even though I suck. And uh, <laughs> And I mean, boxing, martial arts is very different. It's very solo. It's very introspective. And uh, they build different facets of your character. How do you feel that transfers over? You have nobody to blame but yourself. And that was something I think in my teenage years I had never gotten good at. I would always just say, like, we lost because this happened. Or these circumstances outside of my ability made it so that I could not perform. And then there's a certain point in your life where you have to just start accepting that there is no way in every scenario in your life that it was somebody else's problem. That it was somebody else's fault. That they were the cause of your, like, of your affliction. And I think martial arts taught me that. It taught me that a lot. It's like, man, I got punched in the face or I got dropped to a liver shot or something like that or I didn't check a kick properly. That was my fault. There's nobody else to blame. It's not like your teammate passed the ball wrongly to you. It's it's you were in the wrong space, in the wrong mind. You did the wrong thing. So you need to think about it. You need to make sure you build that muscle memory. And, th- and that's the thing in programming too, right? Being introspective, realizing that you, you could be the issue in this scenario. Like communicating effectively, being honest, those are all things I gained from, from sports and martial arts. Like, uh, I used to think naively when I first got into computer science, that I was like, I'm just going to be that dude that just minds his own business, programs his own things, um, never speaks to anybody. I want to learn everything masterfully myself. And then I realized it's not possible. You have to communicate. And you wouldn't even be good. Like, nobody would hire you. No, You wouldn't work on any team. Like, what software are you... Unless you're Linus Torvalds. That's a different scenario. He's the Ooh, edge case there. hold on. <laughs> Well, I mean, no, there's a ton of people who uh, make changes to Git, right? There's a bunch of maintainers of that, not, ju- not just him. It's not mm-hmm. like he, he, he put the bedrock and he put the idea out there and, and people grabbed onto it. But he's not alone. Yeah, nothing, nothing no, amazing is no built one, alone. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I kind of had the same mindset for a little while. Like, I'm just going to take a piece, go on my own, work on it in isolation, get it, make it great, give it back. And I'm just going to take pieces and work on pieces and give them back. And it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, you know, whatever system you're building, whatever project, whatever project I've been on, everything involves lots and lots of communication. Because even as you take away, it involves a lot of discovery, which is why communication is key. When I take away a piece to work on, as I'm working on it, I find, oh shoot, this has an implication for the other component that it's going to talk to later in the future. Uh, once I hook it back up, and I need to make sure that I'm in sync with that person about how they're supposed to interact. And that happens all the time with the system I'm working on at work, where I work on a system that produces assets that will be used in a transaction and there are reporting implications. So so whatever asset I create, my whole team is working on, we got to make sure that it makes sense when it comes to reporting time. We have to make sure that it makes sense when we talk about connecting it with the transaction data, the transaction system, or, you know, there's always implications. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Yeah. When have you ever seen, this is what we were talking about earlier. We were talking about uh, the movie Ex Machina and how certain parts of it, I was watching the Joe Rogan Experience like podcast and he had, uh, I think it's Sam Harris, the uh, famous AI neurologist guy. And he was uh, talking about the moments in Ex Machina that you rolled your eyes to. 
And uh, there's a section, like, one of the premises that he just, like, lives alone on this, whatever, wherever he is, and is doing all of his engineering in isolation, goes totally against everything in engineering design that's ever existed. Like, no no team is, I mean, it's a team, it's an engineering teams. There's a reason we work in teams in that. That, that The premise is just ridiculous. Um, that but, premise. But yeah. you shouldn't roll your eyes at everything. But even, yeah, is what he was saying. even if you don't agree with that part, fine, maybe it was a budget constraint. And they said, you know what, we can't have 50 people <laughs> or 20 people. So let's just have one person. Who knows? I'm sure that wasn't the bottleneck. But I mean, there, there are reasons. Yeah. <laughs> Artistic reasons that they chose that. Yeah. You can't do anything alone. You can't do anything in isolation. And every it's development, it's design, it's engineering. It's it's all, all of that it has to be done in teams. And you should always practice as if you were in a team. And that was something I learned. You can't be isolated. There's yeah. no way. And, and I mean, this is even further proven by the fact that duck testing exists. Or like, uh, you know, like the rubber duck thing where you... Oh, yeah. Just explaining your problems to somebody, even if they like didn't even speak your language. Or like everybody who has a dog knows this, where they, they talk to like their dog about the issues in their life and it helps resolve them. And your dog's not going to like bark back like, bro, do your taxes. He's just, you know what I mean? <laughs> just yeah. Just talking to them, asking questions and not getting a response... Like the phrasing of the question helps you realize what you need to do. Yeah. It's especially if you're talking to someone who's of a lesser technical ability than you mm-hmm. and you have to kind of put it a little bit in simpler terms. So it, boil it down to what is really I find crucial it helps to me, explain it. Yeah. yeah it helps me like, simplify. It. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That phenomenon is called rubber ducking. And yeah. many, many times at my office, I'll pull someone aside and say, like, hey, can I use you as a rubber duck? <laughs> Some some new intern has never heard that before. He's like, "What? What are you talking? <laughs> what are you talking about, man?" Yeah, it really works. It's really effective. What do you think is the like number one thing that interns? Okay, actually, let's make this a two part question. Things that interns are coming in with that you are like that you're like great about that you love. People are coming in. I don't know. Maybe it's like being super passionate, or maybe they have like a skill in some really specific domain that they have, or, or some new tech that they use that you weren't ready for that you'd never seen before. And what's one thing that you dislike? Or that you, you realize that students or new interns are lacking when they come on the job. One thing I always love to see is interns that come on and they're, they're always eager to start contributing, eager to get something done, to learn and to progress. And I found that with every single intern I've ever worked with. And I, this applied for when I did my internship, all the interns around me, everybody, the huge majority, everybody <laughs> was on the same page. And it, I always, it started to open my eyes towards the end because I, I looked around after being at this at the company and other people have been there over a year. And I saw actually how much work the interns took on because they were hungry to make a difference, to have an mm-hmm. impact. I love that. It's, it's so inspirational to see that. And it, I want to make sure that I'm feeding that as well. If there's yeah. an intern that comes and is ready for, is eager to, to do something, to, to learn and to progress... I want to make sure I'm living up to my end of the bargain, giving them enough so that they're always moving forward. It's always contributing meaningfully. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I've had, I've worked with senior developers that have been similar to that. They've been great mentors. They've given me all the extra context I've needed, um, extra articles to read, extra books even, and, uh, and some lovely profs too. I think that's, that's the most beautiful thing that can exist because there's obviously some profs and some developers that are there sheerly for the money. And then there's, there's the ones that will go so out of their way for supplementary information. And, uh, I have one in one of the courses I'm taking right now. We were talking about this before. Uh, one of my professors for my human interaction course, and she just has such a wealth of information that's like just available for everything. You ask her a question, she'll stay hours after her her 
like allocated office hours just to talk to you if, you, if you're super interested. And she's hundred percent. She's made such a difference in all of the student body, like by a large stretch. And she teaches way more, way more classes than the average prof. And she didn't even have her master's. She was just super passionate about teaching people. And she had a lot of ideas that she wanted to give back. And she worked really hard at making that information digestible for kids or for students. I, I respect that to the fullest. Just absolutely respect it. Uh, this was something I didn't appreciate until I was older. And I'm hearing it from you. Is There are certain teachers or mentors in your life that you will never forget their name because of yeah. how big an impact they had on your life personally. Yeah, man. Even if it wasn't the material itself, like and everybody has that one high school teacher that they latched onto more than they thought they would have, and it may have, and it may have drastically influenced what career you went into, right? Like if you genuinely enjoyed this professor be- or like this teacher because of her passion for like biology or something, which was one of the reasons I wanted to go into biology, is I had this one teacher in high school that just she was so ready to give you information that I, I was I latched onto it so much, not even caring about the content, which I realized later. Like I obviously find biology really interesting, but it was just her passion that drew drew people to it. And I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. And then I reevaluated some of my options and like reevaluated what did I really want. And uh, I mean, I made the right decision. I'm happy. I'm definitely happy. Yeah, you f- you figured it out for yourself. It sounds like. Yeah. I, oh man, the the I had the biggest relief when when I went on my co-op because a lot of people, I mean, they they'll do their four years of university or whatever their pathway to achieving education is, and then they'll they'll get into the workforce, and if they immediately realize they don't like it, it's just just the pressure is on, the weight on their shoulders is it just bears down on you. Like, what if you go into accounting and you realize you don't like accounting? That's that's a scary place to be in in your life. You have to take a couple of steps back, reevaluate what you want to do. And that's, that's difficult. And when I went on my co-op and I, I started working on these tasks and I realized I loved it, it was just like every stress, every anxiety, everything just melted away. It just, it relaxed me and I, I did a great, I was just happier in all aspects of my life. And that, that was only possible through good professors and good mentors, and good learning. So if I ever get into the position where I'm, I'm similar and I know there's somebody passionate, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go to the ends of the earth to, to try and help them. I'm lacking context for what exists in the landscape of computer science. Like what different jobs exist? What are the hot spots for certain things? What are the different technologies people know and what are the marketable assets to have? Like obviously university is never going to teach you that, right? They delve into like some of the courses you take, like you learn how to build a, I don't know, a parser or you learn some computation theory and you may never apply that, right? But Right. I, I really, f- computer science is a science, the same way yeah. biology is a science. So you you learn that but it's not focused on a job or an application right. of it. That was a big thing. In my program, um, networking and security at UOIT, they took a lot of feedback from people that went into the marketplace and implemented it. And it, I think it's because it wasn't a science, right? The program was called networking and security. And they really wanted to teach you practical things versus just teaching you all the nitty gritty of, of that industry. In the fourth year when I was leaving, uh, they added an Active Directory course. It was brand new that year. And Active Directory doesn't have too much to do with networking and security, except that out there in the industry, 90-something percent of shops use Active Directory to keep track of their users. So once people got onto the workforce, they knew all of the theoretical, but they didn't know anything about this particular application Mm. that applied it. And it was the 90-something percent use case. So... That was feedback, and it got added into the final year of our course. And it was, 
the course taught a lot of good stuff. It was also really a chore. Um, we had to run two virtual machines. So we had like a Windows 2008 server okay. running and like a Windows 2013 or whatever the next one was. And Windows is particularly I.O. heavy. So it reads and writes from the disk a lot more so than Linux. And having two VMs that are very I.O. heavy <laughs> and not being on an SSD oh. was brutal. <laughs> so we were not allowed to do this, but a couple of the students swapped out their their drives for SSDs. Oh, yes. And just didn't tell the university. Oh, yes. And those are the only students that really excelled in that class. because That's hilarious. It, I couldn't they had believe the, resources. the difference. Wow. The difference is massive. Like when we had to apply Windows updates after installing, on each VM it would take 20 minutes, at least actually. And you had two VMs running and they were running simultaneously and competing for IO. <laughs> so, and on an SSD, it would take two minutes each one. Beautiful. Can you imagine if the first 40 minutes of your class was just people waiting for a thing to finish? I would hate myself. That, I, that's super cool though. I like, I mean, um, not the bottleneck of, of performance and like the resources, but mm-hmm. um, taking a big data course right now and just like the them giving you real world tools to work with and real world data to work with in your course. Like I'm taking a, a big data course. And so we have something called the green plum repository or green, green plum system. And it's, it just gives you essentially, it's just a workspace that gives you a Postgres database with a bunch of different tables that are all populated with thousands and thousands of records of stuff. So like it'll a bunch of sample data essentially. And it has stuff like household income, ethnicity, age, demographic. And that's the whole point of big data, right? Is you want to try and pull out a linear, linear regression of household income to the number of rooms in your house or something like that. Uh, or, or you could, you know, run it in R and get all the analytics data you need. Maybe you do want, want to do k-means clustering or naive and Bayesian stuff. And all that stuff is super cool. And they give I don't you know the- what any of that stuff means. <laughs> Neither do I. Uh, <laughs> But it's uh, it's just super cool. They gave us, they just found a perfect tool, a perfect resource that has a collection of data that you need, and it's it's real, it's applicable in the real world. It's it's literally the pipeline that you would use for anything else, and I, I think it's super cool. I just I really love when you have that for courses, as opposed to like something super niche or super theoretical or super like this was this was really applying what you learned in a real world way. Yeah, and I'm sure it differs from company to company, right? They're gonna like parallelize whatever they want to do and they have their own data structures that you have to transform for whatever before you import it into R, import it into any analytics workspace that you want to work with right as is the job of a, a data engineer yeah etls massaging data into useful formats massaging that's the best term to describe that I <laughs> massaging that. Yeah. I, I like that stuff man was there anything that was too theoretical to be practically applied in your your undergrad because i mean you said that you're it wasn't a science it was more a collection of things that were really marketable for for networking and obviously you got a well-rounded view of not marketing uh, networking um the only things i i felt like i took that weren't applicable were the things like mar- we had to do a marketing course oh okay. or- <laughs> did you ever take like a course in excel and like random oh, office applications that was an elective that one of our one of the guys in my program found this elective it's a business uh course that's mandatory for them that's hilarious and we could take it as an elective it's just teaching people how to use Excel and teaching about the formulas, the equals, whatever. Did they even... Like, they went into macros, but oh, like man. two-line macros, right? <laughs> so as people who've been... We were all third year at the time. And That's so we've been writing code for three years. <laughs> and that course was just the easiest A-plus anyone's ever... Any of us have ever achieved. But you guys have done a bunch of security courses and stuff, like at the same time, like intermittent between all of this learning, right? So wouldn't you know how to like inject 
Excel macro, oh, yeah. macros. In <laughs> oh yeah. You know, when you open an Excel file that has macros, it pops up like, are you sure you want to run these macros? Yeah. We learned all the, we got bored in the class. Yeah. So we started like, what kind of This might have actually been good. This like allotted time that you, somebody in university, your dean was like, this is going to be good for kids. Don't worry. They're no. gonna- <laughs> they banned us from taking it the next, <laughs> we're no longer allowed to take that course. Oh, that's hilarious. I think also there was no bell curving in that course. Cause there's just like 10 it's, students who got A pluses. That's hilarious. Wait, 10 out of how many students? It was maybe is... 50. Oh, okay. See, I'm used to... F- it was like a fifth. Yeah, it was like a fifth of the class. Yeah. There were, there were students that really... How much did it scale down in the years that you went? Like first year, how many kids? Second year, like you... Because your class size decreases over year, right? It was, it was big. So at my I was in the IT department and there were two programs. There was networking and security that I did and there was game dev. Oh, yeah. Both of them four years. And then we shared a lot of courses in first year and then we kind of branched off more. Yeah. In my program, it went from maybe 70 down to about 30, 35, something like that. So it was about half throughout the four years. But game dev was a cliff. Like there were 200 students in the first year. And it, I think about the same graduated, like 40 students graduated. Wow. So, and after first year, there's a ton of drop off. People that realize, no, they don't like to make games. They only like to play games. Yeah. There's a really big difference between the two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's an interesting experiment that you can choose to figure out if you're ready for it. And one of, one of them, I read this in an article somewhere. I think it was a, like a blog post. Somebody was saying, Gary's mod, you know, the game, uh, you know, Valve created. I don't think Valve actually created no, it. No, that was a mod created by the community. Yeah, and they just helped them publish it properly. I don't know. Anyways, um, yeah, Gary's mod is a game that puts you into the, the shoes of a creator as opposed to somebody who's genuinely playing the game. Right, because there's like there's full scripting in Lua in that game. Most of it is just like prop manipulation, and you make games in Gary's mod, right? It's it's like a it's a mod workspace, right? And that's super interesting because you can tell the kind of people who like to do that and the kind of people that don't like to do that. And uh, yeah, that you have to make that distinct. You have to be able to distinguish those two things before you enroll. But hey, I couldn't yeah. do that, so and I switched. So there's no harm in that. You figured out what you wanted yeah. and what yeah. you didn't want. We're, that's more a game dev uh, thing. Yeah. I never really got into Gary's Mod or any of those. Or you know, like Game Maker was something that was popular oh, dude, when I was I younger. Went to, oh, man. I went to a summer camp for that when I was younger. I loved it. You, there was a Game Maker summer camp? Yeah. my I don't know where my mother found this. And I don't even know how she knew we would be. I mean, maybe she, she had a hunch that I was going to enjoy computers and stuff. Everyone around you knew except you. <laughs> yeah. I was playing soccer too much and it clouded my thought maybe. Uh, but yeah, she found this summer camp. It was like, it was actually excellent. It was... It was more than just Game Maker. We also did like some small robotics. Like every Friday, we would go and build robots and program them. Um, yeah, I don't know how she found this. It was actually excellent. I'm going to do that for my kids 100% if they enjoy it. 100%. <laughs> yeah, we would make simple games. I, my brother was always a shit. He would always he, he would always do st- every assignment that we had. It wasn't even an assignment. It was like every task that you wanted to do anyways. They would call them assignments. It would... Uh, he would just mess and mess with the boundaries as much as possible. So he like we were just testing different things. And one of the games he made was like this game where you control a ball and you're supposed to go through a maze, but you're not allowed to touch the walls. And it uses your your cursor of your mouse. So mm-hmm. you can mess up, right? And just to mess with people, he would also make it so that as you're right about to get to the end of the finish line, it was just a jump scare. Oh. <laughs> he would do that all the time. And oh, he just messed with it so much. I love that though. Like yeah, and then he grew older and became a professional troll. <laughs> that is right. He went into accounting. 
No. Uh, I'm just kidding. But no, uh, he, he works hard. He yeah, works a lot. That is a different work-life balance landscape. Uh, accounting is crazy different. It is that it is there's a line of people that they can replace you with at the end of the day you have to know that you have to be okay with that there's busy hours and if they have work it has to be done and computer science is very different in that regard i mean i, I mean it, it's similar in the sense that when things are crashing and burning you have to work hard you're going to work overtime if you need to if a system is failing or if something needs to be done by a deadline you guys are going to work harder on it and faster but i mean they would they would scale all the way up to like sometimes 80 hour work weeks like in busy season wow which is that's double yeah it's two jobs that's two full-time jobs right it's pretty crazy man yeah that's it's not that that doesn't happen in computer in in technology because it definitely happens but i think it happens far less often people people want that work-life balance i think fundamentally it comes down to supply and demand like there there are not enough there's not enough people who know how to do technology things to Mm. satisfy all the jobs that are here I'm sure that that's increasing. Oh, it's getting it's getting better all the time. Yeah, the enrollment is pretty crazy nowadays. Like the w- there was such an uphill battle when I wanted to start off learning. Like all I did was fiddle with a computer because there weren't any resources. There wasn't any how-to computer for dummies mm. at the time. So I spent a lot of time just tinkering, just trying to break things or trying to make things work. But the internet was a different landscape back then too. When I was on the internet, I found it very easy to find articles that just explain how to do things. Like if you searched, there was no Google at the time, but if you did a Yahoo search and you said, how do cell phones work? There was a very good chance you would find a detailed technical manual on how every little piece works. And this is a real example. I remember staying up late multiple weekdays in a row, uh, way past when my parents thought I should go to bed, reading about how CSMA cell phones work, how wow. GP, how GP, GPRS, uh, I forget all the acronyms now, but how these technologies work what a cell phone tower looks like versus mm-hmm. a radio tower and why it looks that way because it works a certain way. Wow, that's uh, that's super interesting. But how old are you, you were doing this? I don't know, man. <laughs> I was barely double-digit age. Um, I was probably 12 to 14, somewhere in that age range. And my parents wow. would get really upset. They would come down and be like, Sergio, you're supposed to go to bed an hour ago or an hour and a half ago. You're down here doing nonsense on the computer, wasting your life. I love that, though. That's the That's the workshop, man. That's the lab. That's, that's where lab. you that's where you figure out what you like. If you enjoy the process work for something, you'll do it. And now I find it much harder to find useful information like that. This is actually something I've I've thought about previously because I was reading this one um this one book on No Search Press it was released for free by like Bunny Huang. He's like a the guy who remember exploited the Xbox original for the first time and extracted security keys and released it as an MIT publication and they there was a bunch of legal implications for Microsoft as, as a result of that and they tried to remove him from faculty. Um, yeah, and one of the things he says um, in like the preface of the book is like the landscape has changed in terms of what it, information is freely available for like hacking, and I mean hacking in like the tinkering sense, like of the learning, word. Yeah. yeah, exploring. Saying that with you, he's like when I was growing up, like DIY satellite radio kits were all open, like you they had the schematic with it when you bought it, right? Like when you would buy something from Radio Shack or whatever, it would have tell you all the components. If this stops working, you know to like replace this transistor, or teach you how to like manually physically understand the hardware better and everything was a lot more transparent and open source and that's changed right like everything is just one closed product and i mean you've seen it in gaming consoles they hide the screws everywhere they they, they make sure that you're breaking some vor- warranty seal when you're opening something yeah you, it makes it really difficult for you to learn there was even this was a big legal thing uh, i think it was a couple of years ago now where in the united states if you own a playstation 
and you do something with it that the manufacturer did not intend for you to do with that console, there are legal implications for you. That's you ridiculous. Know? Take it. <laughs> for Take example, it back. right? You can a get bunch in trouble. Of guys from Sony with like repossessing uniforms. Just <laughs> we have come to repossess your PlayStation. We see that you've added a mod chip, and that is not allowed. We are taking it back. <laughs> we don't like that you're using Hulu and not like, Netflix. That's a real thing. You can't <laughs> use a device for something that goes against their policy, their terms of use. Screw that, man. And in Canada, so as soon as that was on the horizon that manufacturers were starting to talk about that in Canada. They said, if you buy something, you own it, you can do whatever you want with it. Nobody can tell you how to use the thing that you paid money for and own. Yeah, man. If I want to use my dryer to dry my dishes, (laughs) (laughs) I should have the right to do so. Yep. And if your house burns down, it's my fault. It's your fault. If my insurance doesn't cover dishwashers, or sorry, (laughs) 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 washer dryers with dishes in them, so be it, man. That's my fault. But it's definitely changed. I mean, this is something I've noticed that kids in, of like my generation, I'm a lot younger. Um, I come from like the younger wave of developers and people who are, I mean, I'm still in university. We understand the underlying hardware a lot less, a lot less. And I mean, you can tell, right? Like Arduinos are super popular. Anything microcontroller are really popular. And I mean, that's not even entirely open source, I don't think, right? Arduino hardware and software is open source. All of it? Yeah. Okay, interesting. But yeah, and I mean, that's it's a super good tool, right? Like a, to, to learning uh, microcontrollers, mm-hmm. I've never built a DIY radio. I've never, I've barely ever used transistors in my life or like resoldered certain things. I mean, I have, I built my own mechanical keyboard, but and yeah. that was purely to learn. Like that was purely because I wanted to understand things and bridge the gap between what I didn't know hardware wise. Let's talk about that because you have a fascination with building your own keyboard. <laughs> it was just the one, the one project. I have a fascination with mechanical keyboards in general. Which is unfortunate because it's expensive and I'm a student. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so tell me about the the keyboard that you built um, and why you built it. So I really like. So my first mechanical keyboard that I bought was this Ducky. It was a blue switch. Um, it was a full size keyboard, which is whatever, hundred and something keys. I don't use them anymore. One hundred six or something. Yeah, yeah, a lot of keys. Full numpad, full function row. Um, I just liked. I mean, that one wasn't the most durable, but I just liked how there was like a high quality product. A lot of thought was put into it. A lot of design is put into it. And I started reevaluating everything around me. I'm sure as everybody does, when, you, when you're in an office environment or in, your, in an environment where you spend the majority of your living hours there, you start to reevaluate things like as, even as simple as like, what, is, what chair am I sitting on? Like, how comfortable is this? How good is this for my back? How many, what are the long lasting implications as, for this? And, uh, and that's spread into everything. Like I, I use a trackball mouse. I use a mechanical keyboard. I just like was trying to reevaluate things to see how much I like them. Try and erase all of the axioms that like, you know, we've been given and experiment with things to see if I like them, if I genuinely like them. And so uh, that stemmed my me wanting to know more. And uh, and since then, I have to, I've switched to like a, my second mechanical keyboard was a Poker 3, which is a 60% keyboard. And I really What, is, what does that it. mean for people oh, who have already had this conversation? So 60% keyboards, they don't have arrow keys. They don't have the numpad, which is, you know, ooh. NumPad is gone. <laughs> they have no function keys either. So that's all collapsed. Um, and so what it does is similar to when you can hold shift to add uh, a modifier to your keys. So that like if I'm holding shift and I press the letter A, it's a capital A. Well, now if I have a function key, I hold this function key, it adds a third layer. And so that third layer can be the numbers one through nine or all the way to zero and the, da- and the dot dash, whatever the hell it is, it becomes your function keys. Hmm. So it's just like alt and control. You, there's another modifier. Yeah. So it's it's fn for function, 
And the Poker 3, the reason I bought it, which is why I found it so interesting, was because you can remap any of the keys on the fly and it saves it to the hardware. It saves it to the keyboard. It has some storage there. So when you plug in that keyboard on another workstation, it keeps all of your keybinds, which is beautiful. So like one of the things I did was I swapped my function key with caps lock because I don't use caps lock and it's in such a good spot. So why not use it for something else? So that's what I use it for. I use caps lock as my function key and then I can press any key. And I find it the best because you don't have to adjust your hands to other keys on the keyboard. You can just like home end and a page up, page down. You can just put them anywhere on the keyboard and use them as readily as you want. All right. So you could you could make it caps lock W if you want, which is a key right underneath yeah. your fingers. Or if you program in Vim or like if you use Vim for anything, the original location of the escape button was the caps lock key because that was the keyboard it was designed for. That's why, you, you know, it was everything was designed to be in the home row. I, don't know, I, I just thought that was beautiful. And so I got super interested in it. And I really like Gatoron brown switches. And so I just decided to, to solder my own keyboard. And there's tools available out there. So like you don't have to, you know, create the motherboard yourself or like the PCB for it. You don't have to do any of that yourself. So you can find, there's tons of open source stuff out there. I used the GH680 or something like that. And it's a programmable, you can flash a new firmware on it and rebind any key on the fly. It's super great, super, super great. And I, I love it. I think you should experiment with everything you have in front of you. Even the things that are, especially the things that are right in front of you, because you might take them for granted. Yeah, I've seen you do that with these different keyboards. <laughs> it's quite a tangent, but... <laughs> yeah. I, I, exactly. Try different mice, try different keyboards, try sitting differently, try mapping different keys. Yeah. I remember when I heard you uh, talk about that, rebinding it was caps lock to something else, I tried... Actually, another friend of mine has it mapped to backspace. Because think of how Whoa. often you use backspace and how far you have to reach your fingers. A friend of mine... Uh, this is common. There's a keyboard called the Happy Hacker Keyboard and they swap a bunch of keys. Um, I don't think it has a control key. I think the control and caps lock are swapped and they move some stuff around. Anyways, the keyboard in your... Or the key on your keyboard that's responsible for the bar... The space bar? No, like a uh, piping. You know, like the piping bar. Mm-hmm. You can... That one is swapped by default to backspace, which is closer. Right. I remember hearing that and actually, I think in Ubuntu 18.04, there's a checkbox for that if you really? want to swap those two That's keys. Awesome. I believe so. And I tried it for a couple of days and it just drove me too insane. <laughs> I put it back. But that one makes a lot of sense because that key is closer and you use it way more often. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Just the ability to change anything. I mean, I can't use any computer. Like, I can't use any keyboard anymore. Like you, other people's keyboards are difficult to use because I just hit caps lock and I just mass angrily text. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. I'm, I have so many little scripts and, and hotkeys that I use on my computer. To yeah. the, when I sit down on another uh, someone else's computer. You're and like I, trying to help debug something and you start typing and everything comes out wrong. And he's like, let me just do it myself, man. You're like, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> like, I swear, I, I, can, I can really type. I, I learned this a long time ago. It, it just makes me look... It, it, it makes people question like are you even a computer person <laughs> like you just you hit six here, buttons like. <laughs> in a row that don't do what you thought they did oh god that's great yeah it's like i try and scroll down the page i hit like caps lock you and it's just like, <laughs> what the hell are you doing so what other what are, what are things have you've like questioned the design of and, and remapped or re- reconfigured in your life that you feel are better the use for you you know it at first came from other people there was a a friend of mine in university who he found that when he was on Linux, the distro he was using, if you hold Windows key and you click on a window, anywhere on the window, it would let you drag that window around. If you press which? Control? Hold uh, Windows key. Interesting. On any distro? I think GNOME has that by default. On the distro right? that with, he was using. Alt. If you hold Alt and click drag, you yeah. can do that. I think that's by default. I think Ubuntu now is Windows key, but it used to be Alt. Oh, okay. I believe so. 
so this this was a you know 10 years ago and i was like that's such a great idea i'm sick and tired of reaching up to this top bar and trying to click on it and missing because i'm in a hurry right. why should this be something that requires so much accuracy true. so i adopted that one and then he had a couple more he had if you hold alt and click somewhere it resizes that window and it resizes from whichever corner mm. you're closest to i actually use a really small utility for that and so do i now on windows and little things like that that are just quality of life improvements that you know, I'm here to just get something done. I don't care to get this size perfect. Or I just need to move it over here or do, you know. Human use cases. This is something we've joked about a bunch. But just like humans are so weird. They, they have such <laughs> weird preferences for stuff. Yeah. Yep. I am a weird human. It's like the, I saw this meme the other day on Instagram. It was like, uh, it was like all developers ever. And it, it was like, nice, uh, nice text editor. Does it come in black? Like, <laughs> just so true. Just really specific things like that. Yep. It's literally just colors. Like, who, who cares? But everybody cares. Everything everybody matters cares. to everybody. And it matters a lot. Yeah. Man, a friend I used to work with uh, in doing more, like, uh, command line stuff, his colors for Vim were just, like, all different shades of one blue. And you couldn't... <laughs> syntax highlighting almost didn't work because everything was just, like, different shades of blue, but he couldn't work in anything else. Like, it, it pained him... <laughs> Really? Paying him to use anything that was like brightly colored that you could differentiate stuff. He was like, I want to read it like it's an essay. I was like, you're a madman. You're actually. (laughs) What language was this? I can't do that with any language. He wasn't joking either. He's 100% serious. That that was what he liked. Syntax highlighting is a, I'm I'm spoiled. That must be the case. Syntax highlighting is a requirement. Mm. Can't, I can't work without it. And good syntax highlighting (laughs) is, is difficult, especially with complex languages like JavaScript, where there's tons of different syntax there's different ways you can define even a function. Just if it's a one line function, you don't have to put the curlies in. How do you, and you can have strings that have variables inside them. Like there's lots of things that the syntax highlighter has to deal with. It's just like an insane amount of things. Do you know anybody who's like configured one or written themselves? I don't. That's why I was going on this tangent. (laughs) Who are the people? Who are these masterful individuals? I'm sure it must be like the worst, the worst process ever. Like just choosing the colors for something. Even color scheming your own. Syntax highlighting is probably a pain. I remember in my uh, computation theory class, we had to, like, because oh, you study, you know, lexical, lexical analyzers, all that kind of stuff. I've never learned okay. these things that you're talking about. Uh, my computation theory class was, I mean, it's basically theory of parsing and the different models that you can use to model certain systems. Like, you know, you know, you know, like you've heard of the, like a Turing machine or a finite state automata and stuff like that. They're just different concepts to explain how to pipeline actions in something or how to interpret some input. That's really abstract, but that's okay. Um, I honestly did, have not, did not follow that. <laughs> okay. D- dumb it down to my level, please. Um, you want to write something such that you can interpret what, Im- like nat- natural language processing, like how to interpret what strings of text are coming up and whether this is a for loop or this is a function, how to interpret the different types of variations between declaring a function. And that's something that when, when you're writing a programming language, you have to write. You have to be able to interpret what a function is so that you can, you know, create the underlying data structure that allows that to be run. And that when I we looked into an example of how for loops were implemented in Java, and it was the most disgusting thing I've ever read, and just so hard to understand. It was. Uh, why, why was it so difficult? His for loops seem very easy. There's specific ways that you have to write something in order to interpret it, and it was just like there's a lot of weird edge cases. That's all it is, and and the more edge cases that you have, the more complex, and the less readable it is. And of course, it was like Oracle Docs, which means they don't have any type of syntax highlighting or like documentation standards. So it's just all everywhere and impossible to read. Uh, this is, these are things that I will never be able to solve in my life. 
Yeah, I, I will never write a programming nor language do in I my care. life. Nor do I want to. I'm, so many people say that they want to learn everything that has to exist in computer science, but there's a lot of problems you don't want to solve. There's a lot of... There's, there's way too much stuff. And yeah. you're not... Exactly. You're not interested. I'm not interested in, in most of it, <laughs> right? Just for example, you've got software development, but even that can be broken down. You can oh, do yes. front end, you can do web development, you can do app development, you can do front end, back end. There's got to be a guy who's, who knows about databases. There's always a database behind just about everything you interact with. And then if, if that's not your cup of tea, you can go the other way into hardware. You can design embedded systems, you can design chips, like all the way. That's something I know nothing about, actual chip manufacturing. Mm. But I know people who work with, like AMD has an office not too far. Oh, wow. Where they actually do very low-level drivers that Ooh. are directly, you know, a result of the, the chip architecture. You know what? You you should get somebody on to talk about, like, somebody who's into, like, writing assembly or something like that and what their, their like, uh, their workspace looks like. Like, how they navigate. What tools do they use when developing, mm. right? I, I do have a friend who likes solving problems that are, like, memory corruption bugs. No, no, never. I would never. Oh, I don't have the mind for that. That is just not, it's not fun. He enjoys that. That's his He pastime. enjoys it. I've had at length discussion with him where he talks about like, yeah, and I suspected it was this. And That's pretty cool, though. That's, that this, is super dope. Yeah, I'll, I'll save that for when he's on because I definitely am going to interview you him. You should definitely interview this. people like that, 100%. Because yeah. I'm curious about that kind of stuff. Like how people actually, like drivers for stuff. This is written in assembly. Like there has to be some, some like IDEs or text editors or some, some tools that are just really good at that and super good. Because I mean, there's... Even when you're writing code for C, right, you need some memory management tool to know if you're, like, leaking memory everywhere. And, I mean, they exist. I'm just super curious. Because that's never something I've touched. Have you ever written assembly? Oh, yeah, for one of my courses. Uh, it was a hardware course. We used the Motorola 68K architecture, which is pretty cool. And my prof was just the worst type of guy. He made us implement a merge sort in assembly for one of our assignments. It was, it really hurt. It really uh, hurt. I get so frustrated when I hear assignments like that. Whereas you're No, you really had to know what you were doing, though. I feel like I learned a lot from that assignment because it was so painful. So, uh, What did you get out of it? Well, no, I mean, just like when you're dealing with really complex assignments that just throw like all the technical crap at you, if you don't understand the fundamentals of like what you're doing, like you write a simple program in like assembly, you, you kind of understand memory allocation, stuff like that, and how sizes for certain things and, and opcodes that exist. But when you're really designing like a merge sort, you really have to organize it structured properly. And that's that is something that you would not get from a small assignment. But also how recursion works and how the stack you really works. have to know it to be able to build it. Yeah, I mean that's a pretty. I'm sure there's some hardcore dude who's into assembly that's like baby food, but uh, <laughs> to me it was terrifying. You you took a hardware course, right? I did an, an assembly programming course. Well, oh, it was that wasn't tied in. we learned about hardware, we learned about gates, and then we learned. About the, the CPU architecture, registers, but it was it was not a real. At the end of it, uh, we did assembly programming, but it was in a, like a cartoon language. It was not a real x86 assembly or AT assembly. Well, I think they like don't that. actually. I'm pretty sure. I want to say something that's incorrect, but a friend of mine at U of T, I think he said that they don't learn. Nobody learns like x86 or 64 architecture. It's just too complex. Like apparently, it's too. It's way, just way too way complex. too many things. If you, you if you need an educational language for your introduction. An educational instruction set architecture. Something conducive to learning. Yeah, because yeah. x86 is a massive instruction set. And to learn that as your first language makes no sense. <laughs> it's, it's the equivalent of like, oh, you just learn how to row, lay a row of bricks. Now construct me an 18-story building. I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> learn by doing, man. <laughs> learn by doing. Paul, what if Git were paid? 
I would be very afraid. Well, GitHub was just purchased, right? Microsoft? Not just purchased, maybe like a month or two ago. And I'm I'm personally I'm Are very nervous for what's gonna clenching come. Clenching the butt cheeks already or <laughs> I'm worried because I uh, I've seen them purchase things before and take it in a direction that I didn't like. And Skype is the biggest example I can think of where Oh boy. I yeah. If if things GitHub is like the promised land to me of anything I can think of, a problem that I need to solve, I can go there, I can type in my problem and cool someone's project, probably yeah. built it. And it, it's open by default. If you want to put something up on GitHub, it's free. If you want to put something up on GitHub that's private and no one else can see it, you have to pay for that privilege, which is a beautiful model. And then they've made it so compelling that everybody wants to put their code on GitHub. They've got a lot of good integrations, you know, and there's, they've got a strong community. I'm really worried that the, mat, the secret sauce of that is going to get lost. I mean, the underlying technology Git would not be paid, like because, you know, Linus, our overlord, has made it such. But I mean, I, I'm of the opinion that if, if GitHub ever turns into something that everybody hates, like we're pretty adaptable for the most part, you know, like we manage, not that we'll manage without it, but something will pop up to take the space. Somebody will provide a service that'll bridge that gap of functionality that we need. Like it's going to like, you know, GitLab exists and Bitbucket exists. And I mean, those are paid services, I think, but somebody will create something similar to GitHub. Like It'll be worked out. We solve a lot of problems. Not we. Yeah, we as a world. Yeah, I think we'll be all right. We'll be all right. GitHub will make it through this. <laughs> At Environment Canada on some other teams, some really legacy system stuff, they were using this this uh, version I don't know, version control. What would you call Git? Is it a version control? Version system? control software. Software or system. Okay. Yeah, there was one called AccuRev that they used to pay for. And it was the it was the worst thing ever. It was it was literally when you're working on a file or a task. There's no concept of branching. First of all, I should mention that everything was just like this repository that you can make changes to. And so their version of making sure that nobody writes or nobody's able to create conflict was you anchor down files as they call it. And essentially, when you let's say you're like, oh, I want to work on like I don't know this web page, I'm gonna anchor down those HTML, CSS files, JavaScript files, whatever, and then I'm gonna work on them. And nobody can upload changes until I like de-anchor them or like let it loose back into the repository and it was just man I, somebody would go on vacation and none of the developers could do anything unless a maintainer would like revert it it was just the worst system ever and it was paid and they still used it it was crazy it was the most absurd thing ever if i explained this model to you previously and i was like dude adopt it like i'm even if it was free you would just be like never in my life will i ever <laughs> try this thing but they they used it not only did they use it they paid for it they were they were I'm getting rid of it over time, but it existed, man. <laughs> what did you guys use before Git? You guys use like SVN and stuff like that? The company, yeah, when I got here, a lot of things were on SVN. They were just starting to move to Git. And I, I was honestly kind of surprised because Git had been around for quite a few years at this point. And I thought everybody who does software development has made the move to Git because it's the best tool. Is Git like exclusively the version control system that allows branching? Like, was there stuff before that that allowed branching? Like did SVN no. allow branching or was that... It did. Many of the concepts were similar They're, to the extent that there's like a cheat sheet Rosetta Stone oh, okay. translation from one to the other. It's not a perfect translation, but... Yeah, because I'm sure some conceptualizations of, of, you know, branching or like some functionality doesn't exist in one versus the other. They have to address that. I've never used anything else. That's a weird other, realization. Other than Git? Yeah. You, you live wow. in a better world, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you've never used AccuRev. No, just... I was not on that team. I, I did not. They were also redoing systems that were like Perl CGI scripts to generate web pages and stuff. And it was, 
I don't want to hurt anybody who's of an older demographic, but it was ungodly levels of old um, that we there, had never seen before. It's nope. just problems that didn't need to be problems. <laughs> well, no, every system is going to have to be rewritten, right? Yeah. So they just hadn't rewritten them in a long time. That was all it's it was. It's a constant churn. There's, there's always, we have a new, we have a better approach and a better understanding now than we did 10 years ago when we wrote this system or two years ago, whatever it is. Do you think that's necessarily true? Do you think it's a better approach all the time? Because, I mean, there are some flavor of the month things, right? Yes. They're, not everything that comes out is necessarily better than previous things that have been out. It's human nature. We want to keep improving things. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about or you'd like to mention? Not off the top of my head, no. I'm uh, pretty talked out. Yeah. I know you've been, <laughs> we've been, your brain's been kept occupied with midterms. Yeah, sorry. Exams. Sorry I've been kind of out of it. Um, I had four midterms, oh, in, no four midterms in one week, one assignment, or sorry, three assignments endless hours of studying and no sleep well paul thanks for doing this podcast despite sleep and exam exams being all around as soon as you turn this mic off i'm just gonna sleep Uh. in the seat that i'm sitting in so and uh it's been good to just you know think out loud and explore these ideas with you yeah i'm Mm -hmm. definitely still a student so i have a little abstract thought (laughs) (laughs) yeah and you know i'm by no means an expert i've I've been working for a couple of years but always more to learn and sometimes I don't even know what I don't know, you know. So it's good to sit down and talk yeah. about these things. I'll, I'll be the rubber duck if you need. Thanks, man. <laughs> I feel that. People want to reach out to you for questions or you comments. You cannot. I am not available anywhere. Uh, my name is Paul Martins. You can, like, contact Sergio. Hit me up if you ever want to find me through him. I, I don't know if anybody would, but okay. <laughs> right, Thank you, Paul, for being on the podcast. This is your community, Toronto. Connect with us and send us your feedback at Toronto Tech Podcast on Twitter or at torontotechpodcast.ca. Today's closing features music from a local Toronto band. This is Atlas by Good Kid. Babies, you don't stand for something. I can you ever vote to all the